It's going to be hard to speak today with so much adorableness down front. Yeah, yeah, Tony, absolutely. I used to be a part of an extended family Christmas celebration in which every kid had to say a Bible verse before anyone got to open presents. There was a rule. You weren't allowed to use John 11.35. You know what John 11.35 says? Yeah, that's right. Two words. Jesus wept. And so that one was off the table. You had to say a longer verse than that. And when the adult that was running this would ask the kids, okay, who wants to go first? Every kid's hand would go up right away. And they would call on one of those kids, and what verse would they say? Yeah, of course they would say John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life, eternal life. And then the adult, after the first person said John 3.16, would ask, who wants to go second? And not a single hand would go up. Because once John 3.16 was off the table, no one was real sure about a second verse that they were going to use. Because John 3.16 is the most famous verse in the Bible. It is the most well-known verse in the Bible. That doesn't mean that it's any more inspired than any other verse. It's all God's word. But it is the most famous verse in the Bible. And it's the most famous verse because it is a one-verse outline of the gospel of Jesus and how God saves us. And we're looking at the four key parts of that outline over four weeks. Last week, we looked at the peril mentioned in the, in the verse, the peril of perishing, the eternal punishment that our sins deserve. Next week, we're going to be looking at the path of salvation, a path of belief or faith. The week after that, the prize of salvation, eternal life. But today, we're going to be looking at the plan of salvation that flows out of love. Now, in John 3.16, who is it that is doing the loving? Right? Who shows love according to John 3.16? Yeah, that's right. It's God. For God so loved, right? It's God that is loving. I would love to just take a moment and allow you to meditate on the fact that God loves you. Take that in. Think deeply about it. That it is God who loves. As people, we have a natural draw or affection towards those that we see as being above us. When I was a freshman in high school, because I played a couple of sports, I knew a couple of guys who were seniors in high school and who were stars on the varsity sports team, and I saw these guys as above me. Right? The phrase that we use is, I looked up to them. And because I saw them as above me, I was drawn to them. Probably for all the wrong reasons, but I was drawn to them. And if they had called me and asked me if I wanted to hang out, what would my response have been? That never happened. <laughs> but if they had, what would my response have been? I would have jumped on my bike and biked the five miles to their house and hung out with them. Are you kidding me? And if they had called me and said, Matt, I've got 10 tons of gravel I'm supposed to move. I don't want to do it. Would you come over here and do it for me? What would my response have been? I would have been on my bike with shovel in hand, right? Absolutely, because I looked up to them. There was a natural draw or affection for them. 
But, but the opposite is also true. If we see people as beneath us or below us, there is no draw to them, is there? As a matter of fact, we may even be repelled by them. Over the course of my life, there have been a few people that I have looked at and I have thought of them as below me. What? <laughs> right, let's be real. Aren't there a few people over the course of your life that you have seen as below you or beneath you? As I was thinking about this, one guy came to my mind in particular that I sat and talked with who had used his position at a church to molest several young boys. And as I sat and talked to him, I got to tell you, I saw him as below me. Right or wrong, I saw him as beneath me. And because of that, there was no draw to him. Absolutely nothing attracted me to him as a person because I saw him as below me. When we see people as above us, there's a natural draw to them. And when we see people as below us, there isn't that draw. Now I want you to think about that when it comes to God. Did God look at me and go, wow, Matt is way up there. That guy's amazing. No. All right, God is creator, perfect. And we are an unholy, rebellious, imperfect creation. When God looks at us, does he look up to us? No, where does he look? He looks down upon us as his creation, infinitely down upon his broken, sinful, rebellious creation. And so even though there is nothing that would draw God to me, God chose because of his goodness, instead of being repelled by me, to love me. Even though there is nothing natural about a broken and sinful world that would cause God to be attracted to it or to be drawn to it, because of God's goodness and God's grace, he chose love towards the world, towards you and towards me. Isn't that amazing grace? That God has chosen love towards us who are so very far beneath him. And that love is made even more amazing when we continue on through John 3.16 and we see who it is that he loves, right? Because who is it that God loves in this? God so loved the world. Now, wait a minute. I, I didn't think we were supposed to love the world. As a matter of fact, doesn't the Bible expressly forbid us as followers of Jesus from loving the world? The answer is yes, it does. Right? 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So, so God so loves the world, but I'm not supposed to love the world, but I thought I was supposed to have the heart and mind of God. What's going on here? Well, the reason I bring this up is because what I want to show you is that, in fact, the word world is extremely flexible. The Greek word cosmos that's used in the New Testament is even more flexible than our English word world. And it is used in a whole lot of different ways. For example, in the New Testament, the Greek word cosmos is used of the entire universe. Everything that has been made, everything seen and unseen, is referred to as the world. But within the New Testament, cosmos is also used to refer just to the earth, just this planet. At other places in the New Testament, cosmos, the world, 
That word is used to refer to the systems of society that Satan ultimately has control over and that tempt us towards sin. That's the use of the term cosmos or world in 1 John 2.15. It is referring to societal systems that Satan has control over that tempts us towards sin. As a matter of fact, look at the very next verse. For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, the boasting of what he has and does, comes not from the Father, but from the world. And so in 1 John 2, the word world or or cosmos refers to that societal context, that house in which Satan uses things in order to bring us to temptation. And God does not want us to love that world of temptation, nor does he love that world of temptation. But in John 3.16, the word world is used differently than that. Here, cosmos means something different altogether. In John 3.16, the word cosmos means the people in the world, doesn't it? It's referring not to the sinful system of the world, it's referring to the sinful people, like you and me, that inhabit this world. That's why the world can later become a whoever, because it's personal. It's made up of the people in this world. And when we think that God loves this world and the broken and sinful people that make it up, it makes his love even more astounding because we are an absolute mess, aren't we? In the 20th century, 200 million people were killed in wars and genocide. If you're a child born in America today, the chances are one in four that while you're growing up, you will experience physical or sexual abuse. If you look at the top 10 websites in America, the top 10 most visited websites in America, three of the 10 are pornographic websites. We live in a society that looks at wrong things and calls them right, and looks at right things and calls them wrong. We're a mess. And it's been that way from the very beginning. I'm in the process in my devotions of rereading the book of Genesis. And it has been that way from the very beginning. It starts with Adam and Eve who chose to rebel against God. And then when God came to talk to them about it, Adam blamed his wife and God for his own rebellion. Then their son Cain murdered his brother Abel. Because Abel bought a better sacrifice and he was jealous. Then Cain's great-great-grandson, a man named Lamech, introduced polygamy into the picture because he thought, one wife isn't really enough for me. I want more than that. And that same man, Lamech, became the world's first serial killer, saying, I've killed everybody who has come against me. You wrong me, I kill you. That is the way I operate. You go a few chapters later, And we read about Abraham's nephew Lot, who was given the choice of two pieces of land and chose the better for himself rather than giving it to his uncle. He went to this place and settled in Sodom and Gomorrah. And when a couple of angels came and visited him, and a crowd surrounded his house and wanted him to send those angels out for all the wrong reasons, Lot said, here, take my daughters instead. What? A little bit later, His daughters got him back, got their dad drunk, and got impregnated by their dad. And I just want to remind you that Lot is the most righteous person, it says, in Sodom and Gomorrah. 
Right? His uncle Abraham is the father of God's people. And on two different occasions, Abraham offered his wife into another man's harem because he didn't trust God to protect him. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the forefathers of the Jewish nation, each and every one of them chose certain children as their favorites and others who weren't their favorites, causing all kinds of family dysfunction. And it wasn't just the, the men who were involved. Rebecca, Isaac's wife, chose the younger son Jacob as her favorite and got him to lie to his dad in order to attain a blessing from him. Jacob married two women and then got into a rabid childbearing contest with his two wives and their concubines that really kind of redefines family dysfunction. It's disgusting. His oldest son, Reuben, he saw how you function in a family, and he decided to sleep with his dad's concubine as a power play to say, no, I'm actually in charge of the family now. And I've only gotten partway through Genesis Right? And I've skipped stuff like a group of people who built a tower to try and assert their authority over the Lord or those who beat their brother up and threw him in a pit and then sold him into slavery. I've skipped all the rest of the Old Testament that talks about David the adulterer, Solomon the idolater, Moses the murderer. How about the entire book of Judges that talks about the most holy people in Israel of that day and they're so unholy that it's hard to even read about them. How about the people of Israel as they wander in the wilderness and are filled with grumbling and complaining and idolatry and sexual sin? And I just want to remind you that almost everybody I've just talked about is a part of the chosen line. These are the very best people at the time. Why is that? Because we're a mess. The world is a mess and it always has been. Because we are a sinful and broken people. And what does John 3.16 say? That God looked at this mess and chose love. Instead of being repelled by us and our sinfulness and our brokenness, God looked at that mess and he chose love. I'll say it again. Is that not amazing grace that our God has chosen love for us? Our God loves us. What kind of love is it that God shows to us? The kind of love that is described in the New Testament as agape. In this verse, the Greek word that's used for love is agape. Now, it's not the only word in the Greek language for love. There are other words in the Greek language for love. Eros, for example, is a word for romantic love. Philia is a word for for brotherly love or camaraderie. But agape is the word used most in the New Testament for biblical love. It is the word used of God's love for us in the New Testament. And it is a love that's unconditional. Agape love isn't based in the merit of the one who receives the love, but in the goodness of the one who gives it. Let me say that again. Agape love isn't based in the merit of the one who receives the love, but in the goodness of the one who gives it. It is an unconditional love. Now, our world is filled with conditional love. Uh, I love you because or I love you if. Uh, Maybe you remember a couple of years ago I shared with you a, a silly letter that was written to a guy named Jimmy. It said, Dearest Jimmy, no words could ever express the great unhappiness I've felt since breaking our engagement. Please say you'll take me back. 
No one could ever take your place in my heart. So please forgive me. I love you. I love you. I love you. Yours forever, Marie. P.S. And congratulations on winning the lottery. Now, that's a a funny or, or not so funny look at conditional love. But if you've ever experienced conditional love in your life, right, you know there's nothing funny about it. It's painful. If you've been the parent whose kid only shows you affection when you give them what they want, you know that's painful. If you've been the kid working so hard to earn your parents' approval and only receiving affection from them when you've done good enough, you know how painful that is. If you're the spouse trying to do good enough in your marriage to earn your husband or wife's affections back the way it used to be, you know how painful conditional love can be. And because we live in a world surrounded by imperfect conditional love, we need to stop and recognize that's not what God's love is like. We need to stop and recognize God's love is unconditional, based in no way upon your merit, based in no way upon you being good enough. Romans chapter 5 verse 8 says, but God demonstrated his love for us in this, While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It isn't that you cleaned up enough and then God said, oh, you've done a pretty good job of cleaning up. Now I choose to love you. It isn't that you earned a certain amount of good points and once you hit a certain threshold of good points, God said, okay, now I'll love you. No, it was while you were in the midst of your sin, the worst things that you've done. Right? What is that? What is the worst thing that you have done in your life? What is the worst pattern of sin in your life? Th- that thing that you don't want anybody else in the room to know about. Recognize this morning that God knows about it. He knows about it fully. And it was when he saw you in the midst of the worst you were ever going to be that he looked at you and said, I love you, and I'm going to give my son for you. Not, not when we cleaned up enough, but in the midst of our sin, God chose to love us. Agape love is an unconditional love. And second, agape love is a sacrificial love. At times we speak of love in our society as a feeling, something that we might fall into or fall out of, right? As if we were tripping as we go around. Oh, I fell into love. Oh, I fell out of love. But that isn't the way that the scripture speaks of love. It isn't primarily about a feeling that might come and go. Those might be our feelings of affection, but that's not love the way that God defines it. Love the way that God defines it is an attitude and action that I choose towards another in order to do what's best for them, no matter what it costs me. Right? Love is an attitude and action that I choose towards another that chooses to do what's best for them, no matter what it costs me. And so love for my wife, it's not a feeling that I have here, or here, or here, or anywhere else. It's not a feeling I have now, or five years ago, or five years from now. 
Love for my wife is the choice of attitude and action towards her to do what is very best for her no matter how I feel today. It it may involve buying her coffee. It, It probably does involve buying her coffee. It may involve doing the dishes. It probably involves that too. It may involve just simply down, sitting down and talking to her about my affections for her. But whatever it is, it's an intentional choice I'm making in order to act for her best, no matter what it costs me. That's, that is love, the way that God defines it. And what has God done in order to give to us? Right? He, he sacrificed, according to John 3.16, his one and only son. What, what did Jesus give up in order to express the love of God towards us? Philippians 2 says, he gave up the glory of heaven. He, he gave up perfection as he dwelt with the Godhead in order to come and become a part of his creation. Do we recognize all of the sacrifice that is involved in Jesus becoming a man? C.S. Lewis tried to give us an idea of the sacrifice that Jesus made. He says this, Lying at your feet is your dog. Imagine for the moment that your dog and every dog is in distress. If it would help all dogs in the world, would you be willing to become a dog? Would you put down your human nature, leave your loved ones, your job, your hobbies, your art, your literature, your music, your sports, and choose instead of intimate communion with your beloved. The poor substitute of looking into the beloved's face and wagging your tail, unable to smile or speak. Christ, by becoming man, limited the thing which to him was the most precious thing in the world, his unhampered, unhindered communion with the Father. We got a puppy in our house this weekend. (sighs) Hooray. And on a totally unrelated note, our kids go back to college today. Okay, maybe that's not totally unrelated, right? As they go back to college, my, my wife needs a friend. And we got a little puppy, and it's so adorable, and it's so cute. But if that puppy was in some sort of trouble, would I give up my humanity in order to become a dog? No. Right? That's silliness. I'm not going to give up my marriage and my relationship with my kids and I, in order to become... No, that's not going to happen. And i got to tell you, I think C.S. Lewis is being generous here. Because the difference between the Son of God and people is far greater than the difference between a person and a dog. Right? I think a better illustration might be, if you could save every termite on earth, would you become a termite in order to save them? Right? Even that doesn't express the incredible gap there is between God and people. No, we would not. But of course, Jesus did that because he loves us. He became a man. And the Bible seems to indicate that his sacrifice in becoming a man is ongoing. It isn't that when Jesus ascended back to the Father, he just laid his humanity aside. Verses like 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5 seem to indicate he is still a human being to this day. There's one who intercedes for you. It is the man, present tense, Christ Jesus, who is interceding for you. That sacrifice of his is ongoing in taking on humanity. 
Of course, the great sacrifice that Jesus made wasn't just taking on humanity. It was going to the cross on our behalf. Because as we looked at last week, our sins deserve that perishing, that eternal punishment that we talked about last week. But Jesus went to the cross in order to take that punishment for us. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24 says, He himself, Jesus, bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. On the cross, Jesus took the punishment that my sins deserved. And as that was poured out upon him, he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But he was willing to go through that because of his love for you and for me. But of course, John 3.16 doesn't look at the sacrifice of love primarily from Jesus' perspective. It looks at the sacrifice of love primarily from the Father's perspective, doesn't it? God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son. It's the Father who is sacrificing in love in John 3.16. When I was in junior high, our church got a new youth pastor. And he came in to candidate at our church. And like any good middle schooler who's, you know, just kind of a punk because you're in middle school, I decided it was my job to try and trap him somehow as we were talking to him and interviewing him. And so I asked him this question. I said, wait, can you explain to me why if God the Father loves God the Son so much, God the Father didn't come to die on the cross, why he sent his Son to do that dirty work instead? I I thought the Father loved the Son infinitely. Why didn't God the Father go to the cross instead of God the Son? Now that I have been a dad and have raised kids, I think I understand the answer to that question. Because as any parent in here will tell you, it is far more painful to watch your kids go through hurt than it is to go through hurt yourself. Isn't that true, parents? If I have a choice between going through some terrible disease myself or having one of my kids go through that terrible disease, isn't it easier for me to go through that? Right? To watch someone you love as much as one of your children suffer is the worst pain that we can go through here on the earth. And I'll remind you that that's terrible pain for me, but I love my kids imperfectly. God loves the Son perfectly and infinitely. And so the pain that was a part of the Father's heart as that punishment was poured out upon Jesus is greater than we could possibly imagine. And yet the Father chose to go through that. The Son chose to go through that. Why? Because God so loved you. Because God so loved me. God's love is sacrificial. Now, now this may be the first time that you have ever heard about God's love for you. And and if that is true, you may be asking, how how do I respond to this, that God loves me? How am I supposed to respond to that? And I want to encourage you, come back next week. That's what we're going to be talking about, the response that we are called to, to God's love. But if you're watching online or if you're here this morning and you're like, I I don't think I can wait until next week. By all means, I want to encourage you. Fill out the card that's on the chair. If you're online, 
write something in the chat room because we would love to sit down with you this week and talk to you about God's call to place our faith in him and what that looks like. For those of you who have spent years living in the love of God, who have spent years living knowing God's love in your life, is there anything better than to praise him and honor him for that love that he's shown to us? As a believer, there's such a joy in just being able to praise God for the amazing goodness, grace, and love that he has shown to us. And so, of course, we want to do that as we close our time together. We want to lift him up and exalt him. We're going to give of our offerings because it's a way that we give back to him in love because of the love that he has shown to us. And I'd like to pray for us as we prepare to do those things. Father, so we come before you today. We are in awe of your love. The astounding, amazing grace and goodness and love that you have shown to us. And we're so thankful for it. We, we fall down before you and are just in awe of what you have done to draw us into your family. And now we, we give back to you and we sing of your praises because it is the natural expression of our heart when we are overcome by the love of God. In Jesus' name, amen.